0: Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Today we are talking about culture and inequality outside the Western European and North American bubble. So to do this, I'm speaking with two experts who have tried to understand how cultural inequalities work outside of the West or the so-called West. So I'm very happy to, uh, that I'm joined here by, first of all, Professor Predreg Sevichanin from Serbia, the University of Nis, and then second by Jan Gao from Furman University in the U.S. So welcome, Peja, I know I can say, and Yang, Can you briefly introduce yourself?
1: Yes. My name is Predrag Cvetičan, and I'm an associate professor at the Faculty of Arts, University of Nis. I teach there Sociology of Art and Sociology of Culture and Aesthetics. And in Belgrade, I teach at the UNESCO course, Cultural Policy and Cultural Rights.
2: Thank you. Welcome, Yang. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Yang Gao, and I am an assistant professor of sociology at Furman University, and I teach introduction to sociology. I also teach a class called media, culture, and society. I also teach a higher level uh, methods class, particularly uh, qualitative methods. Okay, thank you. Welcome. So what we're talking
0: about today is about culture and inequality outside of the Western European and North American contexts. So research on theory on culture and inequality, including the things that we've discussed in this podcast so far, usually look either at Western Europe, specifically France, where Bourdieu started his work, or at North America, especially the US. And by any standards, both of these places are an unusual part of the world. so. But we pretend as social scientists, we tend to pretend that these insights that we get from this research are universal, that they work everywhere, that they're the same, that we have classes that function in the same way. Um, And actually, we are not sure if that if that is possible and this, if, if that is the case. So today we're sp- speaking with two scholars who have tried to understand culture inequality from two very different vantage points. So Deja or Predrak has done research in Serbia. So making arguments about how uh, culture inequality is structured differently in the Western Balkans, whereas Yangao Gao has done research in China looking at the cultural taste of Chinese youth today. And both of them have shown that the mechanisms by which culture and inequality are related are not always the same. And that also means that uh, the theories that we use may need to be rethought when we start looking from a different place in the world. So the questions that we ask today are first, empirically. What does research outside of Western Europe and the U.S. tell us about the relation between culture and inequality? But the question is also theoretically. So what shortcomings or blind spots can we see in the current Western European or North European, North American theories that we have? Can more comparative research improve our understanding? Could it improve our theories or maybe could should we revise these theories altogether in the light of insights from outside Western Europe and North America. So this is what we're talking about today with two experts from very different places, also looking at very different cultural forms, but coming up with insights that, are, that can help us think this through. We start with the surprise question. So the surprise question for today is both of you have actually been very successful in academia, both in your countries of origin and also outside which means you must have internalized quite a bit of cultural capital uh, during your youth to make it or in university to make it in this system. So can you reflect on the sorts of cultural capital that are needed to make it in the university system where you were originally trained and maybe also on how this was different the moment you entered other uh, academic fields. So maybe Predrag first.
1: Yes. I mean, uh, especially during period of Yugoslavia, we were constantly in touch with uh, global culture at the time, although it was not called global. Uh, When I was young, I had a new wave band. I played in a new wave band. (laughs) And it was very often compared to bands like Joy Division, Gang of Four, Perry B, and so on. And although I I already started to study sociology, I was sure that the major division in Yugoslavia is between those who like Joy Division and those who like Cure. (laughs) <laughs> but then in a brutal way I realized that it is not so no, that's not the- <laughs> and, and this was not the major social division <laughs>
0: no. uh, yeah. thank
1: you my education was rather colorful or my mentor would say chaotic <laughs> because I, I graduated in sociology in my own hometown and then I went to do history of art in Prague at the Central European University did MA there in history of art. And after that, I returned home and did sociology of art masters in Belgrade. And after that, I went to London to study uh, philosophy of social sciences at the London School of Economics. Finally did PhD in sociology in Belgrade.
0: Thank you. So can you say something about your experience of coming from Serbia and then moving specifically to uh, the LSE, which is in London?
1: Uh, For for me, uh, this um, staying in Prague was a sort of reparation. Mm -hmm. It was a Western-style education institution, plus with rather good facilities, especially library. Before that, I was in several uh, summer schools, also taught, for example, by close associates of Karl Popper, like David Miller and Mark Noturno. So for me, it was more or less without a problem to adjust to... To teaching and to this sort of stuff. But on the other hand, it, my mother teaches English. Mm-hmm. So I was, when I was a kid, other kids were mocking me that I'm not a Serbian, but I'm an Englishman. Mm-hmm. But when I was in England, I realized how much Serbian I am.
0: Yeah, so, how did you realize?
1: I mean, it was quite different in everyday contexts. For example, in Serbia, everybody really intervened into your life ask you about your personal life and this sort of stuff. But then when you're in trouble, they're all there. But in England, it's it's like in, in, in jokes, it's rather cold. I mean, people are like distant and so on. I even met, for example, two best friends who work in LSE library. They worked together for 18 years. And one of them was showing a picture of a home to another. So I realized that they were never in their homes, best friends, for 18 years. So... For me, it was a bit strange. Yeah. This is a different type of society. So, yeah. university-wise, it was just like cool. But when it comes to English type of life, it was it needed adjustments.
0: So it was cold. University was cool, but the life was uh, cold. But the, yes, yes.
2: Okay. the life was cold. Okay. So Yang, what about you? Uh, I think like Frederick, I also had my fair share of traveling, but not as colorful as his. So I uh, finished my undergraduate study in China in Beijing. I'm a born and bred Beijinger, and um growing up, I really uh, you ask about the cultural capital that I come to think of it. I don't think I have much of the cultural capital as defined in the Western sense. So, for example, I don't play any instrument. I don't remember growing up going to gallery or museums or like opera because that's not part of the Chinese, you know, uh Culture. Uh, also, I am. Uh, I was born in the early 1980s. That's very soon after the 10-year cultural uh, revolution, uh, during which there's, you know, tremendous political chaos and the persecution of intellectuals in general. Uh, so it's really just kind of. I'm, I'm. I was born in the on the cusp of, you know, the cultural revival and the country reckoning with its this recent uh, traumatic experience and its cultural tradition. Uh, that said, my dad was a uh, uh, major in Chinese literature. So I I guess I could say I was a voracious reader growing up. Uh, for some reason, he emphasized when I was a, a young age to study English. So I also, I always had really good English grade growing, uh, growing up. And I also kind of grew an appetite for English uh, literature, uh, just reading, not really the the canonical English literature, but whatever I can get my hands on. Later, I went to Hong Kong to finish my master's in sociology. And then uh, eventually I came to the United States and studied for my PhD in sociology from Vanderbilt University. And so I was a sociologist through and through, I guess. Uh, But if you're but I think your question is very interesting, because nowadays, When I uh, chat with my friends, uh, they'll have kids, right? So aged between like three or 10, depending on when they get the kids. uh, Nowadays, there's this very deliberate emphasis on cultivating uh, particular tastes among young kids. They all study English from the get-go, like from the kindergarten. And every kid seems to learn at least one instrument. Piano is the most popular and popular. Followed by the violin, you know, in my personal experience, uh, and also traveling. Emphasis on more of a cosmopolitan taste is is very much, very much uh, deliberate and intentional. I think that is definitely a generational difference that I notice. Even though I'm not that old myself, I can, I can sense that. So this brings me to the final question, and Preja, I would
0: like to start with you. So was this something that surprised you most in today's readings?
1: Uh, For me, I I mentioned this introduction is the best part. And it's really ambitious. It speaks about uh, overcoming methodological nationalism. Also, it speaks about infrastructures which help or prevent this circulation of intellectual goods. But for me, it, it was a bit surprised that it looked like that these practices which circulate outside of this Western European world are so few. while in fact, there are many from, I don't know, Salsa to Buena Vista Social Club, Cuban Music, from Falafel to Chinese. One of of the things that editors mention is that they received basically uh, articles from Western Europe and from the States. And very few people from outside of this circle uh, applied there and spoke about this. I guess this is, I think that these institutions of producing and distributing knowledge are are at least partly uh, to answer for this. So for me, surprise was that project was really ambitious. And, and this inter- introduction is great. But somehow, I, I think that the promise was not fulfilled by the articles there.
0: No, it is. So it is exactly the problem we're talking about. So that even when we are studying the sort of non-Wests, so we tend to do it from Western institutions and with Western theories, and it, indeed it also shows in the introduction. So Yang, was there something that surprised you in particular either in your own uh, research project or the other readings?
2: Yeah, I my surprise actually uh, is with, after reading Predrag's co-authored article, I guess I just connected more with a more kind of coherent whole study also, I guess, before I read the article, I was a little intimidated by all the complicated graphs, uh, but then really after uh, I powered through it, I was really surprised. I guess I always know that and to just kind of conceptually, but uh, this is a very well uh, conceived conducted research and also clearly written. And I was just so surprised to realize again, in a very concrete way, how complicated, but also so patterned uh, the social space can be. Right. And so, like, I just came to the realization yet again how, uh, you know, we really aren't the agentic beings uh, with full free will as we imagine. Very much so. I think, as project uh, you and your co author mentioned, there's this gravitational pull of uh, the social location, the social space, where really depending on your, you know, demographic information, uh, uh, Characteristics and other kind of identity markers, uh, your uh, consumption styles, your tastes can be very much predicted, and in a way, I just, I, you know, that's the, I guess, one surprise. But also related to that, also, it's how powerful the tool of social science that we can, we do have, you know, just based on careful conceptualization and meticulous measurement development, we can actually map out this very complicated, uh, you know, complex pattern uh, of social grouping. And so I guess the final thing is uh, kind of, not really surprised, but I just wonder, you know, given, so, given the entanglement of cultural, political, and uh, economic capitals in shaping our social hierarchy, I mean, if we really want to address social inequality, it is really not an easy, it's not a small feat because, you know, rich people don't just dominate by pointing out their bank account, right? There's so much going on here. It's it's really a compelling reading experience. So you basically summarized the first uh, part
0: of the podcast? So so that's excellent. So you just set up all the themes that we're going to discuss later. So what surprised me most actually was uh, emerged from the juxtaposition of both your articles, which is that once you start thinking about a culture and inequality or basically any social patterning outside of Western Europe and the US, what emerges is not only So distinct social patterns that are indeed very patterned, but really in different ways. But also something that I think especially we in Western Europe tend to overlook, this sense of very radical ruptures in the reproduction of culture that have happened many times recently. And I think this is this came out sort of between the lines in both of your papers and actually also in your answers where, Yang, where you talk about the cultural revolution as a moment where sort of the logic of cultural and the patterning was completely uh, turned upside down in a very quick period. And of course the same happened uh, in Serbia or in former Yugoslavia and Yugoslavia where also where the social patterning was completely sort of turned upside down very quickly. Sociologists of culture tend to have really a blind spot because in Europe, it's so easy to think about this in terms of continuity. So, you know, we, we talk about Breu in the 19th century, and although maybe it's a little different, and we had some wars, and this was all, but still, I mean, look, it's, it's there is this continuity. This really is a blind spot, because... It's much more natural for histories to not be continuous than to be, right. So I think this is also something apart from the, the insights in cultural dynamics really in, in what we need to think about when we think about uh, societies that they that they have ruptures and they, they can be disrupted very quickly and even though at first I thought, You know, isn't Serbia and China maybe a a bizarre juxtaposition, but I think it works well to show the the blindness that we have in the common theory. So I would like to say, to ask each of you to say something about the reading. So there are three readings that uh, uh, I suggested. So there is one paper by each of you, and then the uh, introduction to the special issue that uh, Predrag already mentioned. So Predrag, can you say something about the article
1: yeah. We, we, we wrote it in 2010, mm-hmm. and basically there are two main points. One of them is what I mentioned already, that in order to study societies which are peripheral or semi-peripheral, you need to adapt theories in order to be able to adapt theories which, are, which originated in other social contexts in order to get it right. And the second main point would be, and this is why the title is such, that classes are not simply there. Classes are something that are made, and they are made in several steps. So you need to reconstruct these steps if you want to get them right.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is what you do, right? This is what the we steps. try to do. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. So Jan, can you briefly say something about your article?
2: My article, I think, is it's related to my the uh, qualitative nature of my work and the fact that, unlike a lot of the research. Uh, or studies discussed in the introduction in that special issue, might is really kind of a, a cut-in-depth uh, study of a very small particular group of uh, young Chinese people and their and and their taste, their affinity with a, a very thin slice of global culture. Um, so I think that, in a way, sort of uh, contributed in a very limited way to what Project just uh, identified this limitation that the Uh, dominant literature uh, about cultural taste, about social inequality, about social hierarchy, uh, which is pretty much addressing this uh, continuity of the Western European North American uh, center. Thank you. Can I say
1: something about Yang's article? Of it? it, I hope it won't be interpreted as exchanging (laughs) criticism between two of us. For me, when I read it, it was, probably you saw it on the Facebook, there is this cartoon showing... A scientific abstract, scientific body of the work, and scientific conclusion. So in the abstract, everybody is huge and, and promising, I don't know, inimaginable things. Then in the body of, of the article, it's going down. And finally, in conclusion, there's nobody there, or it's, uh, it's uh, somebody who is without any power. But Jan's article is completely opposite. It starts with seemingly small topic, 29 students, how they, what they enjoy in American TV shows and all of a sudden it grows constantly and it discuss the, the key theme between the, the relationship between the text and the cultural context until at the end it explodes. It finally gives you <laughs> a picture of Chinese culture production and it gives you in few sentences, a picture of China. So, from very modest start, you have something which constantly grows until, in conclusion, you see a social context very clearly presented. So, this is why I think it's it's great.
2: Thank you oh. so much. I really appreciate it. Very flattered. That's very, <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice. Yeah. No, I agree. I'm
0: happy that that uh, you saw the same thing, Petra. So then finally, we have introduction to a special issue of Poetics, which is one of the, or the main cultural sociology journal that we have. So it's a special issue by Simona Variala, who we already met in this podcast when we talked about uh, culture and migration, and Noah Lavi, who is uh, from Israel. And this is a special issue. So it, it very quickly discusses each of the papers, but it also outlines a number of important themes on global taste. For instance, the omnipresence of hybrid lowbrow dynamics. The centrality of claims related to authenticity in these global tastes, which is also something that is highlighted in Young's article. The intersection of race, class, gender, and nationality. And of course, what what I liked best about it, what I will return to at the end, is an important critique of cosmopolitanism that the authors offer in response to sort of more optimistic, enthusiastic notions of cosmopolitan tastes. Uh, so we'll return to that at the end, because what we will do now is discuss each of your papers in a little more detail. So starting with Predrag's paper, again, so a little more detail what he does, what we can learn from this, going back to the questions that I asked in the beginning. If we look at cultural inequality from these vantage points outside of Western Europe, And North America. So what can you learn about culture and inequality empirically and theoretically? What does it tell us about the limitations and the blind spots of our theories? So, Predrag, can you say a little more about exactly what you did in the paper and what you found?
1: Yes. We, as I mentioned, wrote it in 2010 with my colleague Michaela Popescu. She's Romanian. We met in Prague and she's now in the States. She teaches in the States. And she's the one who, who he was she was able to do this MCA analysis at, at the moment. And this was more or less the the first, our first coherent attempt to, to translate Bourdieu's theory to adjust it to circumstances in Serbia. And um, what is typical for Serbia in relation to, to culture is that there are, in in contrast to France, that Bourdieu studies in 60s, 70s, and 80s there are two cultural hierarchies. In France, there is one cultural hierarchy, and then there are classes and groups which compete for the status of those who have legitimate culture. But in Serbia, and, and we also, I, I remember that for days I was struggling to find the, the meaning in the data that I have, because I was looking looking for two patterns. One pattern was the distinction between elite and mass culture, And the second pattern was the distinction between those who are culturally engaged and those who are culturally inactive. At the time when I wrote, this was considered to be like the the major division. But I I was not able to find any of these. So after more than a month, I realized that the data shows that there is a huge division between local and global culture. And deeper we go into this, we realize how important it is for the field of cultural uh, styles in Serbia. And there is second axis, which is between traditional and popular culture, contemporary popular culture. So on one hand, local, global, or on the other hand, traditional, traditional and popular. So you can have both, for example, local, traditional, local, uh, contemporary, Global traditional, global contemporary, and we made an even broader hypothesis. I don't know whether Yang will uh, agree with this, that in societies which are westernized in certain part of in certain period of their history, either through colonization or through activities of their own elites, for example, in Serbia, in Russia, in Turkey, elites this 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 westernization at a certain point, and there was a constant tension between uh, local domestic culture and foreign culture. And today this distinction is more about distinction between local and global culture. And when you say global, uh, we thought about global as cultural forms, which are more or less, every uh, you can find everywhere. So you can find hip hop everywhere. You can find opera everywhere. But there are cultural forms which are specific uh, for the, the, the context, for example, Serbia or uh, We are basically studying eight societies in Southeast Europe. Former Yugoslav Republic splice Albania. This is the major field. Then we find this tension between local and global culture, which means that there are basically two hierarchies, cultural hierarchies so it is not the case that everybody is competing without the same within the same culture hierarchy on the contrary those who are proponents of these two different those who have excellence in them they are the carriers of local and global cultural capital so they fight against them between themselves in order to establish their culture as the legitimate one Both Bourdieu and Herbert Gans claim that these um, struggles which concerns taste and cultural practices are not naive at all. These are basically basically struggle whose culture will dominate society. So one of the main uh, struggles in Serbia is the struggle between local and global culture. So these are two notions that we introduced. If I have more time, maybe I can speak about two two types of social capital. Yes, please. So we were aware about this distinction of bridging and bonding social capital. But again, we were not sure how, what to do with it. Because there were two types of social, social capital which appeared in our research, which were close but different. So one of them we called political social capital. Now we call it uh, social capital of powerful connection. It would be guanxi in China. It would be blood in Russia. <laughs> so these are connections that you can use to perform social closure. These are networks that you use that ex- to exclude others for using the same goods and services. This is one type of social capital. And it can be informal because it's interest-based. And there is another type of social capital, which we call social capital of solidarity. And then it's it's usually connected to uh, close networks of relatives and friends. And they are there. Also for emotional support, they can support you with small amounts of money. They can do you a small service, take care of the elderly or the baby. But basically their function is mostly this emotional support. So these are two types of social capital that we realize are present in Serbian society. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that once we realize that these are the capitals, we constructed social space, which is for Bourdieu. It's the adequate of social structure but using these capitals. And then social social space in Serbia turned out to be quite different, particularly when it comes to the principle of composition of capitals. In Bourdieu, there is this volume of capital, three three main dimensions of social space are volume of capital, how much capital you have in total. Then the second dimension would be composition of capital. But Bourdieu in his practice, he's using only cultural and economic capital. He's not using social capital at all. So composition of capital basically means do we have more economic capital, more cultural capital, or they're in balance. In our interpretation, the third dimension is the social trajectory, how these first two dimensions change in history and time. But in our social space, it turned out to be a very complex jigsaw puzzle. In which there are reason, regions of this which are determined by different key resources. So if your key resource is land, means possession, mm-hmm. that means that it's likely that your behavior, your practices would be which be linked to that. And you can explain for that behavior of the peasants, of farmers. Do whatever you want, but don't take my land. This is like the, the core thing for them. Or if you if you're key resource is global cultural capital, then you will your practices will reflect this. So we changed the way that social space is constructed, but as as Yang mentioned, it 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 still proved to be a highly predictive scheme. We were able to predict cultural practices, political orientations, identities from that. There is a strong this gravi- social gravitational pull which shapes these practices. And finally, we wrote another article. We just finished it, and I will later on speak m- more about it. It's called How to Analyze Class Structure in Hybrid Societies. And hybrid societies we consider to be those in which it is not that... That economic field is the one we generate social inequalities. But social inequalities are generated from all social fields, especially from the political one. And there are two different mechanisms which generate social inequalities. One would be exploitative market mechanisms. And second would be social closure mechanisms, which then shape your social position in the social field.
0: Yes, thank you. Very interesting. Actually, it's I remember reading it for the first time and then rereading the article recently for the podcast, and actually thinking that that what's uh, you describe now actually sounds more familiar to me than it sounded uh, ten years ago. So including the importance of these various forms of of social capital, which is actually also something that came up in the podcast on elite cultures uh, and the shifting towards the political field. So it's really interesting that also in the light of thinking how sort of non-Western or non-Western European insight can help us, that actually it seems that the current transformations might be better or more easily understood with the insights you offer uh, from Serbia ten years ago, um, then maybe with Bourdieu uh, fifty years ago, or even the US twenty-five years ago. So it's not just a correction, but also it offers new ways of thinking about inequalities, including tensions between local and global, very specific resources that produce specific forms of capital. And again, this and, and again, so this this understanding of social capital, which is indeed a, a blind spot in the Bourdieu's new approach. Uh, that probably is something that we've just overlooked uh, in European work because it's in you know, social capital and education probably overlapped more. So because this is a student podcast, can you say something about these very complicated figures that are in your... Um, so briefly, what do they tell us?
1: They are the outputs of the favorite bourdieu's technique called... A uh, multiple correspondence analysis. And for him, this was when he realized that there is this technique, it was uh, revelation because he said that this is a method which thinks in relations. And we know that Bourdieu's sociology is all about relations. It basically means that none of these pheno- social phenomena have meaning in themselves. They are always related to other social phenomena. And this is what MCA enables us to do. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we made this social space. You use indicators of, of capitals, and then you construct social space using these variables which construct social space. They are called active variables, and then you, uh, as a layer, we over we overimposed on them passive variables or supplementary variables to see how they are ordered. One of the key. Um, advancement of of these geometrical data analysis, is that you basically let the data speak for themselves.
0: Thank you. Yes, it is something that we've seen before, but it is um, uh, not something that is immediately intuitive. So there's always a lot of work in making them speak for themselves, the data. Uh, So a final question for you. would so if we translate your findings into, say, a sort of almost an advice? So, if you want to make it in Serbian society, what would be the sort of cultural capital that you need to uh, to get by? Or is cultural capital not enough?
1: Oh, definitely not. Um, in Serbian society, uh, political capital and social capital—this social capital of powerful connections—are uh, besides economic capital two key capitals in a way our new article is exactly about this serbia at the moment and this was one of your question an example of the uh, combination of two worst worst combination of two worlds mm-hmm. so we have a brutal capitalism you have uh, companies in which people work on, on these uh, fordian Uh, never-ending tracks. And, and for example, in some factories, they are not allowed to go to toilets. Instead, they are wearing diapers. Or when they get terminally sick, they get expelled from the job and this sort of stuff. So it it resembles more slavery than than, uh, first accumulation, first period of accumulation of capital. And you still have enormous influence of political parties, which was present there from socialism. So these two influences basically shape this society and many of the other societies in Southeast Europe. And that's why we claim that they are hybrid societies. That's why we are never sure which of these is more influential. So uh, when it comes to influence from political capital, social capital, they are more linked to these um, mechanisms of social closure. It's a Weberian notion. In, In Weber, it's clear then when status elements influence economic decisions, then you speak of social closure. When the competition is really harsh, then those who compete try to find some easily identifiable characteristics of competitors, like race, like religion, like ethnicity, in order to exclude them from competition. And this is what is happening. For example, if you're not part of party networks, it's really it, it it won't happen that you will get a job. It won't happen that you will get a career advancement. In some cases, it also counts for scholarships. It counts for expensive medical services. So it will depend whether you are part of these networks. Some of them are party networks, and they are most influential at the moment. And there are I'm, I'm, usually I speak that Serbia is now a multi-party state. So it's not a party state anymore, but it's multi-party state. The main mechanism is the same, but now there are more parties too. They would take, they would like to tear their share. But also there are, there are uh, networks of what we call fellow citizens or fellow, fellow countrymen. These are people who come from the same city or from the same region. So when somebody, when some of them get the leadership position, managerial position, it is very likely that people from the same country, same part of the country, will get positions in this, in this factory or in this company. Mm-hmm. Also, there are different types of social closure, like social, usual types, like based on credentials or based on, on membership in professional associations, but they are less powerful. And besides this, There are these exploitative market mechanisms, but you can say, one can say in Serbia that in order to get exploited, you first need to pass these mechanisms of social closure. So it's not even easy to get exploited. You first need to qualify through these mechanisms of social social closure. And that's why this is a hybrid society. Yes.
0: Well, thank you. This is indeed very interesting for several reasons. I think social closure is indeed a very, actually as a concept, Uh, Unite social and cultural capital, right? So it is a combination of of entry into a specific group uh, that is dependent on your networks, but also on the capacity, on the status characteristics and your capacity to behave in certain ways. I think what's also important, I see Yang nodding vigorously. So I was wondering, (laughs) and I was wondering if you could say, because some of this sounds very
2: much like what I know from China, right? Yeah, yeah. I I I think I think you know in so many ways what uh I guess you know in a way sometimes when I interview my uh students I, I notice that the Chinese imagination typically see the West as a very uh kind of uh it's a overarching, very fuzzy notion of the West. Every almost uh everyone looks white, seems to be part of the Western world. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but I think, uh, project's work really kind of reminded us, uh, in a way, a lot of the post uh, post socialist societies share a lot in terms of, you know, what are the, uh, powerful players in the social, uh, landscape, right. In terms of, uh, uh, different, but social, social capital for sure, but definitely the importance of political social capital uh, on top of social capital of solidarity, which is based on more primary network ties like you know, family, friendship, maybe community and neighborhood. Um, so that is definitely something when I was even reading the paper, I, I find that very recognizable from my experience. So I think it's indeed the post, there is something, maybe
0: it's the post-socialist, um, so the the. The specific power structure that is based in political structures that have been sort of monopolized by a specific group, also the right. sort of the rampant forms of capitalism that have emerged in specific places, and the very quick uh, overturning of social systems. Because it struck me too that actually, even though you know we tend, to, I first of all, aren't they too different? But actually, some of the things you describe, Predrag, uh, about these hybrid societies, are indeed um, could also be said about. The Chinese society.
2: I have a very like an anecdote. I think kind of speaks to that. My cousin, who is a aspiring entrepreneur, um, and years later or years earlier, but he, when he was doing college, for a long time he was debating should he join the Communist Party, uh, in other words, claim the party membership or not. And he's uh, the reason he would want to do that is because in China even. Even if you are a private entrepreneur, you still want to have the party membership because it will give you access to some perks. It will make you more trustworthy when you are applying for certain things, you know clearing some license or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, being a party member also carries not stigma, but this this kind of sense of uh, that you are not the real entrepreneur. Right, so this this very interesting. He was, I remember chatting with him about it. He was like, I'm not sure if I want to be. So people think about par- party membership as, as this kind of bargaining chip or something that they can use very instrumentally to, tr- to achieve certain goals. But that also says something about, you know, it does mean something if you have the party membership, but the meaning is not straightforward. It's kind of ambivalent in a radically... Uh, privatizing and marketizing economy. So I think that is something kind of speaks to this. I, I'm not sure China with, uh, qualifies the hybrid society that project defined, but in, in a way, you know, in this transitional moment, the post-socialist uh, societies definitely share share a lot.
1: Yeah. Maybe I can <laughs> say something about hybridity.
0: Yeah, very briefly, because I think we need to move on yes. to Yang. Yes, yeah. just, just,
1: yes whenever labor market is under heavy influence of non market principles then you can speak about hybrid society whenever it's under influence of politics political party race gender ethnicity not it's not run by economic principles you can speak about hybrid society okay okay that
0: makes sense. so yeah that would qualify for most post socialist societies right okay. Or, yeah, I'm not sure
2: if China's post-socialist or trans... definitely not the social... Yeah, it's not the high socialism. <laughs> no. It used to be a couple of decades ago. For yeah. Sure. Okay, so now
0: I would like to move on to your article. So, Yang, can you say something about
2: what you did and what you found? Uh, sure. Uh, so this Poetics article is actually part of a larger project that I did for my dissertation. And uh, so I would say the study uh ends up finding that perceived realism in other words what we we perceive as real as truthful honest right uh which is uh according to the media literature which is the linchpin in the pleasure of consuming pop culture right that is something actually not embedded in the uh objective qualities or characteristics of the cultural project uh, product themselves but rather stems from uh you know, the active meaning-making of the consumers or the viewers. The viewers, when they actually makes meaning, when they perceive, when they interpret, they're also not free agents, right? They're, they're con- contextualized in particular social, cultural, and political context. And so, in other words, this perceived realism really stems from what we would call contextualized meaning-making of uh, particular cultural texts by cultural users, um, and of course, you know my case is the Chinese consumption of American television. that's the particular case uh, based on which I conducted this study.
0: Yeah so and you looked specifically at a very particular group of very elite youths. So mm-hmm. that allows you to link this specific perception of realness to to uh, the
2: elite position in China. So can you say how you link right. this? Yeah, uh, actually, I guess, you know, in part, it is because when I started the research, I was a graduate student, and I uh, noticed the news report of how Chinese college students are very passionate about American American television shows. And this is not surprising. I guess earlier, Frederick, you also referenced to the fact that elites, uh, in many ways, cultural elites, they are typically... Uh, the people who are who bear the brunt of uh, cosmopolitan you know tastes right so they're the ones who are most op- op- open to uh, foreign unfamiliar cultural forms and so that's the first the reason that I turned to this group and also very much like a uh, project I came into this project expecting something very different right I didn't I mean of course i like Uh, the idea of realism or authenticity wasn't in my head from the get-go. In fact, I was thinking about something very different. I was hoping to see, okay, so if this group is so uh, passionate about American culture, first I wanted to know why, you know, especially given the cultural and uh, linguistic barriers uh, between Chinese people in general and an American culture. Because, I mean, if you wanna enjoy an American TV show, you have to first be be able to understand it and then appreciate it. So I want to know why, where is what is the cultural appeal? appeal? What is the the draw? And of course, also I was uh, at the time immersed in the literature of critical cultural consumption. I was hoping uh, that to find that my respondents would be critical of American television, despite their passion for it. They would you know, criticize it and say certain things wouldn't, uh, don't make sense to them because of the cultural discount, right? Um, But then I came in, I started with students. uh, I mean, everyone was so passionate to share. I remember my uh, average interview is two hours long. Sometimes I can't shut people off. And the interesting is, the interesting thing is people have different reasons for liking American television. One of, one common reason is, oh, I started off uh, wanting to uh, sort of polish my English to speak more authentic English because I know it's gonna uh, it's gonna bode well for me in higher education, in my employment prospect. Uh, but then everybody seems to be sharing this refrain when they rave on about their favorite TV shows, which is, oh, This particular show is so real. This is why I like it. And that particular show is very real. It really speaks to me. It really resonates with me. And that's fascinating because, uh, I mean, what is real about Gossip Girl, right? (laughs) I don't know if that's, I mean, back then it was a popular show when I was interviewing my respondents. What is real about, um, uh, I don't know, Friends, right? I mean, that kind of sitcom setting in New York, Central Park, it's It's very, it's very, it's not very familiar to the everyday Chinese experience. So, but then again, we're talking about a bunch of highly educated, very savvy college students. So I, I just kind of ask more questions, follow up questions, probing, what do you mean by that? And so it dawned on me very quickly, or gradually, but like quickly when I powered through the interview data, is that they're, they really are not talking about very similitude. They're not talking about how you know close the representation of American culture, American people, American society, all those shows uh, are matching with their imagine, imagination of Americanness. It, it has nothing to do with that. Rather, they're very aware that these are manufactured products. These are shows that are made, crafted, uh, and uh, sometimes rewritten because of uh, uh, viewer rating. Uh, And then they're, so they're not that naive about this production process, Uh, but it's actually precisely because they realize that uh, people are constantly talking about the attention to the detail is very, uh, very good. And the fact that they are addressing this controversial matter, uh, that they are having this debate about the, merit of uh nationalism or patriotism in this show called 24 uh is is really something i think is 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 very transparent right so in other words it's not really applauding oh this is uh this is so much like the american life as i imagined it or raving about the consumerism on the show but more about uh this is a job well done this is a story well told and in that sense, it is uh it, it is respectful to my intelligence as a consumer, as a viewer. Mm-hmm. So I think it's that kind of recognition, give them a sense of realism, right? And of course, you know, I talked about when they talk about uh authenticity or realism, obviously we were talking in Chinese. And so the Chinese phrase that they use is American television is really genshu, and that's that's a concept composed of two words uh, or two characters, two Chinese characters. Zhen means real or truthful uh, or honest, and shi means solid, um, um, solid and trustworthy. So it's if you combine the two really about trustworthiness of this particular cultural taste, right? That it is actually grap- grappling with the messiness of life uh, in a very competent way as opposed to, okay, I'm just telling this really uh, tepid or propagandist uh, uh, you know, story in order to preach a point, which very much was the main fare uh, in the Chinese TV market if not entirely now but definitely uh when i when i when i collected the data for this project that was 2000 and um 2007 2006 yeah. 2007 so this understanding of of,
0: of realness and authenticity like mm-hmm. all cultural Tastes is about opposition, right? Yes. So this is so the relation relationality that also that Pragrat just highlighted is so it's also so you like something which also means that
2: you don't like something else. That's a very good point. In fact, uh, that just reminds me, and if um, I think it also is reflected in the quotes in this particular paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never really asked the students because my my intention was to study their their fondness, their enthusiasm for American television. I never really asked them deliberately what they think of Chinese television. But if you look at the quotes and actually the quotes that didn't get into the publication, almost everyone began talking about uh, affinity with or appreciation of American television by starting with, oh, because it's so much better than Chinese TV. Mm -hmm. I know this Chinese TV show, which is about this party secretary, this party, uh, you know, official who is portrayed in this particular way. But in fact, we know, you know, corruption is rampant in China. And this kind of, you know, uh, stage or uh, saint-like politicians or or like statesmen are really not realistic. So they they tend to juxtapose, they tend to offer of their own volition this kind of opposition, this kind of uh, comparison and contrast. They are. They're not naive. They're not. Uh, they're not uh, uninformed. But they're. But they're uh, comparing that within their own cultural context. Right.
0: So, and can you say something? Because, as you said, this is now uh, 13 years ago. So yeah. obviously, China has changed. Uh, Chinese television also and media production also has changed quite a bit. So, do yeah. you? Would you expect? Uh, this to work in the same way today as it did
2: uh, when you first talked to these people? We're still, again, we're still trying to figure out a way to to make sense of the pattern. But I think in China right now, there is there is definitely uh taste hierarchy, even just reflected uh, in people's uh, appreciation of television shows from different areas. And it seems to be that English-speaking uh, television uh, or, or English English language shows seems to be carrying a particular kind of cachet, and uh, so that people who are who like American shows or British shows, uh, they I mean w- we found that they seem to have you know uh, better educated parents, uh, their par- their families seems to have higher income, uh, and they also seem to have higher level of english ability and more international traveling e- traveling experiences versus people who have more local tastes or maybe regional tastes they they have lower volumes of those uh, economic and cultural capital in general uh, in comparison with the more western oriented taste so that's something that i i think uh, is emerging but it, there's a lot of nuance to that too <laughs> So it as
0: actually this takes us back to what you said at the beginning of your friends um, who are now all sort of prepping their kids for learning English yeah. and for so it's actually so this is the sort of cosmopolitan capital that we see emerging in many different places where where young right. elites focus on international or young upper middle classes focus on international uh, consumption patterns which can function as sort of a, a way to pave the way for. Uh, international careers, but also for local upper middle classes, and yeah. I think this is something that we see in China and everywhere, and maybe also in Serbia and so on.
1: And Serbia is now a very divided society in many aspects, and maybe I can tell you about some lines of division if if there's time. Mm-hmm. One of them, and this is what I call struggles on symbolic boundaries. We have a huge project on struggles on symbolic boundaries. And there are four symbolic battlefields in Serbia. One of them is educated versus uneducated. But now it's more transformed into those who have scientific mindset and let's say enlightenment mindset against those who have anti-scientific and anti-enlightenment mindset. You have in Serbia, like everywhere, you have those who are anti-vax, those who are flat earthers those who for example anti darwinian and so on so it's this is one of the this is one of the boundaries one of the struggles between those who think that virus is something which is invented by i don't know whom that there's no reason not to go to uh, religious ceremonies where they use the same spoon for thousands of people god will protect them And that all these things about evolution, they were invented by I don't know whom. So, and on the other hand, you have people who are basically well-educated and think that this is all rubbish. But before I thought that the first group of people is unimaginable, but I'm not sure it looked like when I looked at the Twitter and, and Facebook, it looks like that they might be even a majority. So the second battlefield would be between urban and rural. In Serbia, there are huge differences between urban and rural areas, the way of life and practices in some countries, there's none or there are these differences are not that uh, clear. Then the third line of conflict would be between, let's say, European north of the country, because European north under inverted commas was once part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they were occupied by Austrians. They were part of the, and the, the, the southern part was occupied by Ottoman Empire. And there are still differences between these two parts in the way that they speak, in the way that they build houses and so on. And finally, the dominant one between cosmopolitans and patriots. Uh, patriots call cosmopolitans, that they are also colonials. They mm-hmm. they accept to be colonized. They don't respect national values and local local values. And cosmopolitans called it patriots fascists because moralists they are. <laughs> so these are like the four battlefields in Serbia. And these, let's say, symbolic struggles, they also have effect on cultural practices in a narrow form. So on one hand, you have influence of your social position, like your economic, social, cultural capital. On the other hand, your cultural practices are also influenced by these symbolic struggles, which makes studying cultural practices even more complicated. Yes.
0: So this actually brings us to the final article, uh, So which we already discussed from the by Lavi and Variale, uh, because one of the things that they end with, as you may have seen, is the issue of cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they actually, it ends with a critique. So they discuss an article by Moti Regev also in the special issue, which is a sort of an sort of enthusiastic understanding of global culture as something that um, progresses and that combines oneness and diversity in a global system of cultural exchange. And they actually juxtapose this with a much more critical approach, uh, where they say, we don't see this oneness and diversity, but instead they cast themselves as post-cosmopolitan, because they identify actually quite a bit, quite a few struggles uh, in contemporary societies that inhibit this cosmopolitanism and that makes them, in a sense, lose faith or question this understanding of global culture. And I'll just quickly uh, quote what I think is the key sentence. So they write, we belong to a cohort or a generation of sociologists who enter the profession in the first and decades of the 21st century in the context of global economic crisis and ethno-nationalist and racist reactions against human migration and e- economic and cultural globalization. Thus, they say, we offer a reading that foregrounds disruptions of global harmony and intersection of ethnicity, race, gender, and class as variables of cultural inequality. So they actually move from from cosmopolitanism and globalization as this sort of move towards at least a cultural system that is able to to, to unite people. Uh, to really a more fragmented understanding that they call post-Cosmopolitan, where the ruptures and battlefields are actually becoming much more visible. And I was wondering how you think about that. Maybe? Yeah, Yeah. you go ahead,
1: please. Ah, Okay. Uh, For me, what we are basically witnessing is second great transformation. Mm -hmm. If the first transformation was to give birth to sociology, with movement from local communities to a national state, we are now moving from the national state to the global situation. And I see all these nationalisms and and this anti-migrants and this sort of stuff as very reactive. I'm sure that people didn't really like the move from the local communities into a national state. And this is what is written in in sociological classics. And I think that, that all these things which are happening are reaction to globalization. Which doesn't mean that globalization is good. Obviously, this is one of the one of the possible globalizations, and a very unjust one. So there are there can be different versions of globalizations, of globalization. We are now witnessing probably the the very unjust version. But on the other hand, I'm not. I don't think that there is any way to get back. There is no way to. I don't know. Exclude. Zoom, mobile phones, express transport, and so on. So the question is how to find a way to control unjust globalization. So this is what we need, regulation of of those economic companies which, which use these benefits of uncontrolled globalization. But those who think that there is a way back to national societies and this, there's no way back. It won't happen.
2: This is really fascinating. I think I I also before reading this introduction, I also had a relatively rosy lens through which to look at cosmopolitanism. But I guess, you know, reading this introduction and also just having this conversation, uh, hearing what you have both have to say about this. And also, uh, Lisa Linda, our our joint project that we're still uh collaborating on, I think really makes me think cosmopolitanism with just to give it more thought. So the idea of cosmopolitanism doesn't really mean uh, that exchange is equal and bilateral. It also doesn't mean the power relationship between the West and the East or the global North and the global South are, are now balanced, right? So there's actually a lot of misunderstandings, even among elites, I think, when they are um, kind of embracing, uh, celebrating, uh, the 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 foreign the novel the unfamiliar the exotic right uh there's this kind of in a way it's 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 really this i wouldn't want to say um uh fetish but but it's more like a fascination and imagination of the otherness um and and if you really sit down and that's i think where qualitative research can really come in and do a lot of contribution uh which is uh, to really sit down with uh, consumers or like uh, elite consumers who are um, who are um, more engaged in cosmopolitan cultural practices and consumption and really get to get them to talk about exactly what they're thinking of Social. this of cultural sociologists have a lot of work to do in kind of reapproaching the concept of cultural uh, cosmopolitanism. It's really not not a uh, uh, rainbow and unicorn concept <laughs> as I definitely, uh, was thinking about it not that long ago. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so as we're moving towards the end, I would like to quickly return to the question that we started with. So looking at culture and inequality from outside Western Europe and North America, so what can we learn empirically and theoretically? So to sum up, so Young, what would you say? What can we learn from?
2: Um, I think... Wow, there's a lot. I feel like I'm still processing. Uh, but I think, you know, the idea, a project also mentioned from the get go, uh, class is something that is formed. Uh, and in academia, it's a concept that we create, we conceptualize, and we uh, find different variables and measurements in order to understand uh, largely the uneven, unequal distribution of various social sources. Uh, but I think, you know, given that ori- uh, ori- origin, it is it really makes more sense to study class, to study, uh, you know, uh, how class is made and reproduced uh, depending on the context. And I think, you know, we just talk about cosmopolitanism, we just talk about uh, different forms of, again, this goes back to Project's uh, co-authored article. Uh, even when we are conceptualizing various forms forms of various social resources into types of of, uh, capital, there are still vast differently ways that you can conceptualize exactly what you mean by cultural capital, exactly what you mean by social capital. Are there subtypes of uh, cultural uh, and social capital? Uh, And so, and how do we measure economic capital, which is a beast of its own, right? So I think all these things are, embedded in the uh, political, cultural and economic tradition in uh, different societies, and especially for societies where uh, radical social transitions, or as you say, the ruptures uh, are are being experienced right now. Thank you.
0: So Preja, what for you, what can Mm -hmm. social media learn from your perspective?
1: I think that um, one of the things that is uh, we discussed it. I think that this translation into another social context is also needed from one Western society to another. So even if you, for example, you take some theory which originated in the United States, in order to apply it to Belgium or to Holland, you still need to retra- retranslate it. So I think that this pre- prior work of translation is is needed, and somehow it it. it can sometimes take a lot of work before you you start your empirical research. For me, also these hybridities. uh, We didn't speak much about these hybridities in in this other term, these cultural hybridities. These are the things that are very interesting to study because most of these things which are taken from other societies are either neutralized or made exotic. Mm-hmm. in order to be accepted in other societies for example from the region most of the people know Goran Bregovic musician or Emir Kusturica and what both of them are doing is to make this culture from the region very exotic usually taking gypsies as a model mm-hmm. in order to make it in order to make it interesting for the west but very often it has Very little to do with the genuine local culture. I guess that in case of China, this is the process which also takes place that you neutralize some practices in order to be accepted everywhere. One of the topics which we didn't discuss much, but for me is extremely interesting, is this discrepancy between technical culture and the mindsets. Hmm. There was this technological uh, determinism which basically claimed that Once this technology changes and is accepted all around the world, it will bring social changes in more or less the same direction. But then you have people with mindset from the medieval periods, which are extremely skillful when it comes to technology. So there is this discrepancy between deeper values and practices and this technological development. So I think it's also technological change do do not necessarily lead to cultural change and especially do not lead to cultural change in the same direction. So these are the topics which I think are some of the fascinating topics that we can study all around the world.
0: Yes, indeed. So in a way, we we need to separate maybe different forms of uh, informational capital Uh, So the technological capital and the sort of various forms of cultural capital as really distinct axes also of uh, engagement. Um, So can you just summarize quickly in one or two sentences what sort of things you think students could do to think this through?
1: For me, it was a suggestion to think of the ways in which uh, horizontal social divisions Usually in sociology, it is claimed that things like gender, ethnicity, race shouldn't have influences on social inequalities, but in fact they do. So uh, I would like students or those who listen to this podcast to think about mechanisms in which they contribute to vertical social divisions or social inequalities. We conceptualize social inequalities in our own work as inequality in social powers, not inequality in money inequality. Inequality of different social powers, which can be measured by economic capital, political capital, social capital, and cultural capital. So how belonging to certain ethnicity, race, religion, can influence your social position and especially which are the mechanisms that this is done. And I also suggested two books, which speak about this one by Charles Tilley, and the one, other one is by Rogers Brubaker. Uh, in some aspects they can, for, especially Tilly's book can be naive, <laughs> but it breaks new grounds in thinking about the, the relationship between differences and inequality.
0: Yes, so both excellent books, also very readable uh, books on indeed the relation between difference and inequality or vertical and horizontal uh, divisions. Uh, So very interesting indeed. So Young, you also had a suggestion for a
2: student activity? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So we talked about how global television landscape has been changing really fast and the paper, that is assigned for this podcast by me was uh, about Chinese uh, Chinese uh, consumer Chinese viewers' perception of American television. But that was several years ago. The data was collected even earlier, and so given the fast changing TV landscape and global relationship, uh, a lot of which we talked about in this podcast, uh, I was wondering if students would be interested to. Uh, see, they can do some research and uh, maybe have a discussion about how uh, Chinese viewers their uh, relationship with American content, television in particular, but could also be, um, you know, movies. Uh, whether that have changed, right? And so, of course, these changes may be shaped by many changing um, factors. It could be uh, related to cultural protection, for example. Uh, we know that uh, China, as this big market uh, American TV um, film industry even video game industry have been increasingly targeting the Chinese um, consumers I for, for example there's this talk of uh, increasing or, or adding the Chinese so-called Chinese elements to Hollywood movies so you would have this product really hideous products placement uh in a in a Marvel movie uh or you know you have a couple of Chinese celebrity actors, actresses showing up for like 10 seconds, not even have a line, right? This kind of uh, interesting production strategies. Uh, Also, we know in the United States and in China and around the world, really streaming platforms are um, increasing. There's increasing number of streaming platforms, and that would change uh, the uh, sort of avenues through, through which people get content. And finally, of course, local Uh, You have local production uh, centers like South Korea uh, that we mentioned earlier, right? These also would potentially shape the consumer taste uh, of, of Chinese young people. And so there are uh, online resources students can tap into in uh, researching this topic.
0: Excellent. So this is a, actually a very nice combination of one more theoretical assignment and one more practical sort of research assignment that students and other people who are interested can do. So this brings us to the end of this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. I'm Really, really grateful to both of you, Predrag or Preja, as I think we should say, and Jan for joining me from two very different corners of the world. It's actually very dark outside now, as in Europe we're entering the very dark Northern European night, whereas you are, I think, still in the early morning in the south of the US. It was a wonderful conversation. I feel like I learned a lot about are thinking about culture and inequality and class and consumption and the way it functions and also how we, what we learn from sort of going outside of our own bubble, which is Western European and North American. So before we leave this podcast, I would like to ask you what it is that you can't let go this week. So what will remain with you after this conversation? And Preja, I'm starting again
1: with you. Uh, I'm I'm not quite sure. I mean, probably it's the feeling. I thought that it will be. I had. A, I was not. I was afraid how it will go, but it was quite enjoyable. So, if you need, if you need me to do it again, please call okay. me.
0: Okay. Well, thank you. I also thought it was quite enjoyable. So thank you. So sorry to have made you nervous. I didn't want to. So, so
2: young. So what can you let go this week? Um, I. Again, a lot, really. Uh, but I, I think I think I'm still wondering this question. But I also wonder about the mechanism, right? Because we talk about people have different access to cultural capital, political capital, and um social capital, and economic capital. Sorry, it's not the political it's not the political capital, but the social capital. There's a political form of it. Uh, but I think you know, to speak of capital and to really, uh, get to the root of why we're talking about different forms of capital. I always like wonder how do the three forms of capital if we're still using those three convert it into one another to make our our society such a hierarchical world um, to make social inequality such a intractable social problem That's my hang up I guess. I, I definitely learned a lot from today's conversation but I think that's always going to be on my mind <laughs> that question. Yes. So what
0: I can't let go this week more than anything else is this notion of hybridity and hybrid societies. I think that is really actually a very important understanding. So for me, it was an eye-opener that this is something that you can, uh, and elements of this you can see both in China and in Serbia, but also some elements of this that you can see, I think, currently in many Western European and North American countries, where actually where you see this sort of mingling of and meshing of different fields where the economic field is really also overlapping with, for instance, the political field, and that also that it really requires us to rethink social capital as a form in itself of capital that we can't ignore when we think about cultural inequality. So thank you for that. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope thank you also to all the listeners for joining us. I really hope you will join us again for a next episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. And for now, I wish you a good evening to you. And uh, I hope to see you again soon, maybe
2: also in real life at some point. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you
1: so much. Thank you.